turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 23. All right, Joshua 23. Let's go before the Lord with the word of prayer. Father, we just ask you to have your presence manifest as you promised that you will, where two or three are gathered in your name, that you'll be in our midst. And we just thank you that you'll minister to us by your Holy Spirit. And I just ask that you'll help us all to have ears to hear and to give heed to what you say in your word, the word you have for us tonight. And we just thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. So before we get started in the text, you know, it's often said that when a man, especially a great man, knows he's dying, coming to the end of his days, when he gives his last words of advice, it's generally like something you want to listen to. And I've read a lot of ministers, great preachers in the past, that when they knew they were getting ready to die, they would write down thoughts or say what they had thoughts of. And I mean, I'm always like, that is, it surprises you a lot of times what they have to say. But when they look back all the course of their ministry, where they would have changed their priorities. So, and there's a lot to be learned from that. So I was thinking about that as I was preparing this message because tonight we're going to be looking at the last words of Joshua. So in thinking about that, I, I was thinking, well, I wonder what the last words of Brother Hamilton were. And, I mean, I was here, it was a one Sunday Jeff went and talked for me in prison. I was able to actually be here that Sunday. It was the first Sunday of the month. Usually I'm not here. And I was here that Sunday. It was Sunday, April 5th. Now, he didn't know that that was going to be his last message. I would, would assume he didn't know that. But the Lord did. God did. And when I re-listened to the message, I was impressed with what he had to say for it being his last message. I really did. I remember at the time, I thought it was really good. But here, it's what we needed to hear. If you all, I would strongly recommend that you all go back and re-listen to that message. I really would. And not because I'm up here trying to get brownie points. He's not here anymore. Or for any of his relatives. I'm saying it is just, I believe, a word to the church. But it came from a godly leader that was concerned about our future. And we hear so many, we hear one person so much sometimes, you just take for granted what they're saying. But, you know, I really think the Lord had a message because he was concerned in that message, if you listen, about our spiritual condition in the future and what we were going to have to face. And the title of that message was God's Controversy. If you go back and listen to that, and he begins the message by saying he believes persecution is just now starting in America and that darkness is just now coming and that the days are going to get darker. And he exhorted us to get grounded in what we believe. And he said, hey, not just that we've heard it, but that you can explain it yourself. You know, when I was in seminary, I had a teacher, and he said, you really don't know something until you can teach it to someone else. And that's true. And he would have us, we would have to teach each other what we were learning in class. And if you didn't know it, you wouldn't get very far. So what he's saying is right. And that's how well we should know our convictions that we could meet someone and explain to them, scripturally go through and show them why we believe what we believe. And that's what he exhorted us to do because he said, only those of us here that are that, that grounded will be able to stand in the days that are coming. So he said we need to take advantage of the light while we have it because darkness is coming. And here's another one that can just sometimes go over your head when you're sitting there and you've heard your pastor a hundred times. But he said, we've gotten so used to us, he's speaking to all of us here, so used to living in sins that we excuse, little sins, that our consciences, he said, have become dull. And he, talking out of Hosea, he said, where Hosea says, they languish, my people are languishing. And he's told us, he said, we're languishing here in a lot of ways because of that, because of our consciences being dull. And he said, the reason that happens and the reason that's happened to us is what's the message all through the Old Testament and all through the Bible, where God's people turn from him and they get involved with the other gods of the other nations. And he quoted Hosea 7, 8, where it says, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. I'm not going through this whole message. You guys got to re-listen to it. But then towards the end of that message, he said that he believed that this church, us, people in this church we're going to soon be coming to a valley of decision or we're going to have to decide are we for the Lord or are we not for the Lord are we all out for the Lord 
Like I said, I would strongly encourage all of us here to re-listen to that message because we've got the last message of Moses, the last message of Joshua, the last message of Paul. When he talks, we've got chapters of Jesus' last message. We don't just hear those once and never re-listen to them, right? And I really do think that was a message for us. So we're going to look tonight at Joshua's closing message to Israel. And the reason I'm bringing up Brother Hamilton's is because there's a lot of similarities in what was said there. So if you'll turn to, we should be there, we'll have to turn to it, uh, Joshua 23. So I want to just begin by reading, we're going to look in Joshua chapters 23 and 24. And no, we will not read all of those chapters, but a good section of them. And the title of my message tonight is, because they like to have titles, is The Day of Decision. So he begins here in chapter 23, verse 1, it says, It came to pass a long time after that the Lord had given rest unto Israel from all their enemies round about, that Joshua waxed old and stricken in age. And Joshua called for all Israel and for their elders and for their heads and for their judges and for their officers and said unto them, so he's brought in the representatives of the people, I am old and stricken in age. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done unto all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he that has fought for you. Behold, I have divided unto you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes from Jordan with all the nations that I have cut off, even unto the great sea westward. And the Lord your God, he shall expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land as the Lord your God has promised you. Now, he begins there in verse 1 saying, now a long time after. Well, what's a long time after? It was probably about 25 years because he was about the same age probably as Caleb. They were both the spies. Forty years they had to wander in that wilderness. So it's been about 25 years since they came into the promised land. Joshua, we know, lived to be 110 years old. That's pretty good ripe old age. So when he says there in that first verse that the Lord has given rest unto Israel... He's not saying, for those of you that, my, my people that used to come to our Bible study out of Hartman's ought to know this. But when he said he had given them rest, it doesn't mean Joshua hadn't conquered all of the land, every square inch of it. He just basically conquered it in a general sense. But there was a lot of mopping up, so to speak, that the tribes had to do when they went into their territories. So he'd given rest, but he hadn't conquered everything. And you find that when you read the book of Judges in verse 13 here, that there was still land and nations to be conquered but as a whole he had he had gone in and split the country of canaan what became israel and he had a north northern and a southern campaigns to take over that land and he conquered most of the major cities it was their land but they hadn't taken full possession of it yet that was to come because remember god said what i'm not going to drive them all out at once but how was he going to do it little by little is what he had told them So he calls for all the leaders of the tribes to come here as representatives to meet with him, knows his days are numbered, and so he's given them his final word, his final admonition. And he lets them know here in these first five verses two things. And one thing he lets them know is that what has happened to these nations that they've gone in and conquered in Canaan was not because of anything they had done. So it wasn't because Israel was great warriors. It wasn't because they were great military strategists. It wasn't because they were good people. Why were they able to go in there and conquer the land? Look what it says at the end of verse 3. He says, For the Lord your God is he that has fought for you. He's letting them know it was all God. And to God be the glory. That's what he's letting them know that. And the second thing is that when they continued to go in and take the rest of the land that he had given them, that they need to remember that that was also going to be the result of the Lord your God. And that's down in verse 5. It's the Lord your God. He shall expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess the land. Why? Because God had promised it to them. Not because of anything in them, not because of their smarts, their looks, their brilliance, any of that. 
So they had, here's the thing, you read that book, they had military success like no other army ever has on this earth. And except for what Paul talked about last week, that battle at Ai, they did not know defeat. Now that's not humanly possible, but it is possible with God and when God is fulfilling his promises, isn't it? I would say that. So they went from being a slave nation. They didn't know anything about armies and military. All they knew about was stomping mud and making bricks to a nation now with their own land. And Joshua right here is letting them know, you better check your pride at the door, though, right? Because God did it all. And I want to bring that home to us right now because, listen, all of us, don't we need to be reminded of that constantly? So you have a successful business, and I know a lot of people in here do have successful businesses. What we need to remember, though, when we have successful businesses is what God told Israel. And he told them this in Deuteronomy 8. He says, Beware that you forget not the Lord thy God when you have eaten and are full and have built goodly houses and dwell therein. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, because here's the temptation and it really is. It goes on to say, Then thy heart is lifted up, and you forget the Lord thy God. And you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant. We need to remember that, don't we? We sure do. Yeah, God can bless us, and he will, right? But we need to remember and not think it's because, man, we're such hard workers, or we're so smart, or, man, I just know how to make the right deals and all that. No, no, no. If you're successful, it's because God has blessed you. So if you want to keep it, give him the glory. And I'm not saying you all don't. You don't. So your business is making so much money, you got to have three bank accounts. That's no problems, but we just read the warning. You can't forget who's the one that gave you all that money and why has he given it to you. The New Testament-wise, he says he blesses you so that you can be rich unto good works. No problem with you don't have to drive a broken-down car to prove anything. Right? I'm not driving a broken-down car, and I live in a goodly house. But he's saying you got money, and the Lord's blessing your business. You should be looking ways to help other people out. Right? And furthering his kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Or we could take it another way. Say you got you think, man, you've got the best behaved children in church. They're little angels, they're all made confessions of faith, been baptized and speak in tongues, and never get in trouble. Well, you better not think it's because you're such a smart, godly parent that that's the reason, is it? Because who's given the power to make that happen? It's the Lord, isn't it? And we've got some really good kids in here. But it's God that's done it, right? Whether you belong to this church or the Catholic church, if you're saved, it is all by God's sovereign grace. And it doesn't hurt that you got a mother that prays for you either, as a lot of people have. Or what about, you know, God's healed you as a result of your prayer? I mean, that is not a thing to be like, you've got, you've got that faith answer, you're full of faith. Because that just tells you you really don't know what faith is. Because faith is that weak hand that is reaching up to grasp on to the mighty hand of Jesus Christ the healer, isn't it? You're, you're the man with the withered hand. What could that guy do? How much boast can he make that he made the effort to stretch forth his hand? If God's power hadn't met it, it would have stayed like that. So, right, all the glory goes to God. Those crippled people couldn't do enough exercises to get up and leap and walk, could they? Right? So we get, we get healed we need to make sure our testimony, no wrong with the, nothing wrong with the testimony, is there? But we're truly blessing God. Because, listen, if we're honest with ourselves, when it's a real serious physical trial, you are battling fear, if you're honest, right? And you're saying, God, give me the grace to hold on. That's the way it is. And so when he does, let's not forget that he did it. So any future victories we have, just like he told Israel, look, you're where you're at in the past. You've got that testimony that you have, but it's nothing because of you. It's all because of me. That's what Josh is telling them. That's what the Lord's telling us. And God has future victories for us, doesn't he? I sure hope he does. Yet we're counting on that. But we should make sure that's what Joshua's telling them. Make sure you know it's the Lord and his promises that are giving you those. 
So he says, hey, he'll do all this for you. He is gonna, he's going to bless us in the future. Just that's what he told Israel. But he says there's going to be conditions he lays out here. That's what Joshua does. He lays down three conditions. And we see the first one here in verse 6. And it says this. Be ye therefore very courageous to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses that you turn not aside therefore to the right hand or to the left. Because what's going to happen? They're moving into this culture, this Canaanite culture, that it is totally wicked. And that's who's going to be their neighbors. They're not supposed to be. About who ends up, who ends up being their neighbors. But they're going to have to deal with these people to some degree, right? And what, who, what are these people like? They're fornicators. They're drunkards. They have bad business dealings. They're evil. Because how do we know that? We know part of it because we know what their worship entailed, but we also know why is God sending them in there to destroy these people? He said, it's not because you're so good, but because of their wickedness. He's let their wickedness come to the brim. He's judging them a righteous judgment. And he said, I'm sending you in there to judge that sin, but you are going to have to have some courage not to get involved in their sin is what he's telling them. So it's going to have to take some guts for the Israelites to go in there and stand, and stand their ground to take a stand when these Canaanites are tempting them. He says you've got to have courage not to deviate one way or the other, but stay right on the path God's given us. And let me ask us, do we not think that it's not going to take supernatural courage to live the Sermon on the Mount in this society? <laughs> I mean, really, don't you think so? You think it's not going to take supernatural courage or courage to not retaliate when someone smites you on the cheek, they're ripping you off? That takes courage. It doesn't take much to just let somebody have it. But Jesus showed more courage when he let them do to him whatever they wanted to, right? That took courage. It's not going to take some courage, and this to me is not that shouldn't be that big a deal, but it can be peer pressure, but to stand up and say, I can't watch that movie. There's too much sex in it. There's sex in it. And Matthew 5 says, I'm not to look on a woman with lust. I can't watch that movie. It takes a little gut sometimes to stand up and say that when people are going to mock you about that. When you got a need and then you know your mate is going to get on your case because you're having financial problems. It takes some courage to say, I'm going to trust the Lord. When alone would just make things easy, easy to take care of. Or you're going through a healing trial and you know there's all kinds of help available. It's going to take some courage, isn't it? It really is. To take a stand and say, I've made Jesus my healer. Alone. I am the Lord that healeth thee. Exodus 15, 26. Because here's the thing. We got some other last words. You know, if you read in Kings, I believe it's 1 Kings 6, David had some last words for his son Solomon. He's a young boy. He's going to take over this nation. And you know what the first thing he tells him? He says, be thou strong and show thyself a man. A man. In America, men are not men much anymore, really. They turn into women. My wife was saying, now they got a TV show coming out. It's going to be about a guy that turns into a girl. I'm like, Bruce Jenner does it, and ever now they got to have TV shows about it. I mean, this world's crazy. Men are not men. But God says, be strong and show thyself a man. I taught a message once at prison called Christianity is not for cowards. And it's not. It really isn't. Because who is going to be in the lake of fire, Revelations 21? The fearful. And the unbelieving, they're the first two on the list. So no one's, you know, courage is when it may be you feel afraid, you're facing a temptation and a trial, but you're crying out to God to look to him to help you to be faithful, to not deviate with what you see in his word. And God will do that for us. He'll give us that grace when we need it. So the next condition he lays down in is, is in verse 7, and it says this. That you come not among the nations, these that remain among you neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourselves unto them. 
So what's he telling them there? He's saying, you all, this is a message we've heard over and again. A separated people. Isn't that what that message is in there in verse 7? And he says, you're not to mention, swear, serve, or bow down to the gods of these other nations. He's saying, don't mention their gods and their rituals. Don't even talk about it. You know why? Because their rituals were lewd. Baal worship involved sex. And I don't want to get into the details, at least not tonight, about what it all involved. But it was filthy. It was an unclean worship. And he's saying, don't even mention their gods or serve them or have anything to do with them. And actually, I'll tell you, what he's saying there translates right into the New Testament with Paul. So if you'll put something there in Joshua 23 and turn back to Ephesians chapter 5, look what Paul says. It sounds a lot like it. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul says this. He says, Be ye therefore followers of God as his dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for his sweet-smelling Savior. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, he says, let it not be once named among you as becomes holy people, saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting. And he's talking there about dirty talk, dirty jokes, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks for this you know. We should know this, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And he goes on to say, look, there, and there's a lot of people that will tell you you can be those things and make it in because that's how wide God's grace is. And Paul says, let no man deceive you, verse 6, with vain or empty words. For he says, the people that do those things because of these things comes the wrath of God Upon the children of disobedience. So he tells them in verse 7, you better separate yourself from all of what I just talked about. Be ye therefore par not partakers with them. For you were sometimes darkness. That's our past. But now, he says, are you light in the Lord? So walk that way. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And look at verse 11. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And Joshua said not to mention what happens. Look what he says in verse 12. Paul says, it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. He said you're not to have any fellowship with the unclean works of darkness, even to the point don't even talk about what they're doing. And you say, well, you know, I would never have illicit sex or commit fornication. Yeah, but do you talk about it or watch it? How many times do we fellowship with the works of darkness by what we watch? Whether it's movies or TV or the music we listen to. Man, I'm sounding like Brother Hamilton, aren't I? <laughs> or the music we listen to or the humor we laugh at. These guys we think are funny. That's just something to think about. So let's go back to Joshua, and we'll look at the third condition here for God to be with us and bless us in the land. And that is eight, and that is we're not just to avoid evil. It's not just a negative thing, be separate, go live in a cave, have nothing to do with anybody in the world, right? He says it's not just that, but we're not to just avoid and separate from evil, but we are to cling and love our Lord. It, there's a positive aspect to it. In verse 8 it says, But cleave, he says, But cleave unto the Lord your God as you have done unto this day. For the Lord has driven out from before you great nations and strong, but as for you, no man has been able to stand before you unto this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand for the Lord your God. He it is that fights for you as he has promised you. Take good heed therefore unto yourselves that you love the Lord your God. And so he's saying, can't you see that the goodness and the good things the Lord has done for you? He's reminding him of that. And can't we all say that? Has God not done us good here? <laughs> and 
Joshua tells the people, look, he's driven out these nations before you. They can't, they can't stand before you. And you think, well, our tribe's a small tribe, and this is a big, these people are big and strong in this territory. He says, one man, when God's with you, will chase them to flight, a thousand to flight. You don't have to worry. It's God doing it. God Almighty is the one on your side. Therefore, he says, Israel, you should love the Lord. Why? Because he loves you. That's what he's telling us. If God has done you good, that's he's showing you love. If he's delivered you from something, a sin, a spirit, an illness, blessed you in any way, helped you overcome your anger, manifesting the fruits in your life, that's God's love demonstrated. And so we should love him back, shouldn't we? And he's saying that's what we should do. We should cling to him. And so this verse to me, it paints a picture. Because, you know, in the King James it says cleave, and I've been using the word cling. But he's saying you should cling to the one who is your protector, your guide, and your father. So, you know, all of us that have children, and those of you that have brothers and sisters or can watch children, you know, when danger approaches, what do little children do? Do they go running out there and try to attack it? No. I mean, they are holding on to mom and dad, aren't they? They're clinging to you like saran wrap. And why is that? Because they know their parents love them and they'll protect them and do whatever they have to do to make everything work out right. They'll fight their battles for them, right? And so they love them in return. My little boy, he loves his mother. Oh, you can get him to say that. He loves, oh, I love mom. Dad, I'm not sure. But he clings to his mom. And so can't we do that to our God? I mean, hasn't he shown how much he loves us by the cross? Right? I mean, what battle did the Lord fight on our behalf when he died on that cross? He defeated something we could never defeat, sin and the devil. And he fought and defeated him there on our behalf. So why is he not going to help us now in our other battles, right? He's shown that he loves us. We can cling to him and trust him in that way. He loves us. So are we going to say that God honestly has not been willing to fight for us in any battle we've been in, that he hasn't fought for us like he's, promised, he's promising here to them and he's promised us that he would do? So sometimes it might not seem like it, but the problem was not with the Lord. It, it never is. So our lives, if our lives are right with him, we can cling to him in love as little children and he will fight our battles as he has promised that's what this is. We're looking at this. It's a promise to us. It was a promise to Israel. It's a promise to us. So here's the conditions all summed up. So if we have the courage to walk in obedience to the Lord, living a separated life, and when we do that, we can cling to him in faith. We can. Trusting that he, trusting and knowing that he will fight our battles as he has promised. Is that right, Lane? I know Lane knows that's right. That is right. But Joshua goes on at the end of this chapter to warn Israel what will happen to them if they cling to the wrong person. <laughs> he says, if you cleave to the nations instead of cleaving to the Lord, these very ones that God promised he would drive out will be your downfall, is what he tells them. Look in verses 12 and 13. He says, Verse 11, he says, Take good heed, therefore, unto yourselves. You love the Lord your God. Else, if you do in any wise go back, and here's the word again, cleave unto the remnant of these nations, even these that remain among you, and shall make marriages with them, and go in unto, you, unto them, and they to you, then you could know something for a certainty, verse 13, that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps unto you, and scourges in your sides, thorns in your eyes, until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So what's he telling them here? He's saying, for one thing, God is saying, this is a good land I have given you. But he's telling them the message that goes all through the Bible, isn't it? If you'll cling to the Lord and serve him and trust him, he will be with you and fight your battles and give you everything he's promised. But what is the message, the other side of it? If you forsake him 
and you go after other gods, then God says, I will forsake you. It's that simple. But is it that simple? <laughs> it's that simple, but it's not that easy. But look at something here in verse 14. It says, God, uh, uh, Joshua says this to him in verse 14. And behold, this day I am going the way of all the earth. I've got to die no matter how great you think I am. All of us are headed this way. And you know, he says, in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed. Of all the good things which the Lord your God spake concerning you, all are come to pass unto you, and not one thing has failed. What does he tell them? He says, you know, you know in your hearts and in your souls. He's saying, you really know what I'm telling you deep down is the truth. And what is he saying, telling them? He's saying, God has never failed you. You know that deep down. God has never failed you. We cannot honestly blame God when things don't work. And look what he tells them there twice. Twice in chapter, or verse 14, he says, not one thing has failed. You know that in your heart. Not one promise of the Lord has failed. And he says it again at the end, not one thing has failed thereof. Now, I can say this, and I would say this till the day I die in my 30-plus years of being a Christian, there has not been one time that a promise I trusted God for has failed from God's side. But I can tell you this, I've failed. I've doubted. I've given in to fear. I've been chastised because of sin. I've lived worldly, and I could say I've failed more times than I care to remember about all that. And it might have seemed to someone else like the promises didn't work, but when you're in that position, you know inside you're the problem, not the Lord, right? But this is what I can say, that when 1 John 3 was the testimony of my life, God has always been faithful. He's always faithful anyways, but faithful to me. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's turn over and see. Might be a good thing to do. So once again, put something in Joshua 23. Go to 1 John 3. First John 3 says this, beginning in verse 19, And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and we shall assure our hearts before him. And he's saying that in light of, if you love your brothers, then you can assure your hearts before the Lord. But look what he goes on to say in verse 20. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. So he's saying, if your heart's telling you things aren't right, and he's saying, God's the one that made your heart or your conscience. You're not going to fool him. And he knows everything. So if your heart's condemning you, God's condemning you. That's his voice speaking to you, telling you you're not right. Your heart's not right. And what did David say? If I regard iniquity in my heart, what will happen? <laughs> That's what he says. But look what he goes on to say in verse 21. But beloved... If our heart condemn us not, then what happens? Then have we confidence towards God. And look in verse 22. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Now that is not saying you do his commandments and things that are pleasing in his sight so you can earn an answer to prayer. That's not what that's saying. He's saying you have a clean heart. And you can get answers to prayer because you're keeping his commandments. That's, that's, your, that's what you should be doing. It doesn't earn you anything. But it gives you a clear conscience that then when you ask, you can know God is hearing you. You're not dealing with, you may be battling doubts, but you know you've got that answer. That's what he says. Whatsoever we ask, we receive of him. And so shouldn't our, isn't our testimony in here that when we're walking in holiness and we know we're walking before the Lord and our conscience is not condemning us, that we can be like a bulldog going after a bone when we go on those promises. Isn't that the way it used to be for us all? It did. That's the way we heard it. And you can know, no matter how bad it looks, God will come through. 
Your conscience and your heart is telling you that. But when your heart's condemning you, you don't have that assurance. Oh, you may pray and you may confess and you may try to walk out a trial, but it's not the same, is it? Something's telling you things aren't right. And I've been there. I've been in a bad situation and knowing it's chastisement. And because God reminds me, you said this about somebody. No small thing of what you did. And, I, and I'm, I'm not hearing you right now. You're on your own on this one. And I'm, I, I'm not arguing with the Lord. I'm realizing what he's saying is right. What I'm getting, I deserve. But hey, when our heart's right with God, we can know that we are going to always receive, aren't we? That's what it just said in 1 John 3. That's the promise. It'll work. So back to Joshua 23. So what he ends up telling him here in the end of this chapter is just as God is faithful, he has all, he's never fails to those that are his people walking in holiness. He never fails. But just as he's faithful to those people when they're walking in holiness, he said he is just as faithful to do you evil when you're walking contrary to him. God's faithful, period. And people don't want to hear this part of it. But it's still the truth. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, Therefore it shall come to pass that as all good things are come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, he said, So shall the Lord bring upon you all evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and have gone and served other gods and bowed yourselves to them, then shall the anger of the Lord be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. So guess what? We can truly say, can't we, that God is faithful. But many times the evil that comes upon us is not a trial, it's not because the faith message is an error. There's something wrong with the faith message. But it's because God is faithful. And we need to face up to that. Don't we? That's what we just read. Because sometimes it's because we've turned our back on the Lord and he promises to punish sin, doesn't he? He does. So we can learn this from Joshua. If we meet the conditions, God will fight for us and fulfill his promises. And we went through the three conditions, didn't we? But if we turn from him and cling to the world, we can know this too. That he promises to bring evil on us. That's his word. Whether we like it or not, that's his word, isn't it? So I would say this. At this point, don't we all have a decision to make? The title of the message, the day of decision. And Joshua thought these people at the end here, he thought they needed to make a decision. Back to what I said at the beginning, beginning Brother Hamilton, when you re-listen to that message, he says that one day that's where we're going to be brought to. Valley of decision. So Joshua in chapter 24 calls the people together one last time to make a decision. I want to read it all. I don't want to read it all, but in fact, I don't want to read the first 13 verses. You can read that later, but I want to just summarize them. But in the first 13 verses here, old Joshua becomes a prophet because he says, thus saith the Lord. So he becomes a mouthpiece for the Lord for the first 13 verses. And what the Lord does through Joshua is he gives Israel a shortened version of of their birth as a nation, beginning with Abraham, and takes them all the way up to their present day. And the one thing that will strike you when you read these verses, which I would suggest you do, but whatever, if you don't. But one thing that would strike you if you did read them is that God tells them from the beginning to the end, where they're at on that day is all because of him and his grace. And that's true for all of us. Because it is filled with God saying, I. He says, I took Abraham from idolatry. Abraham wasn't smart enough to get out of that. He says, I took Abraham from idolatry. I sent 
Moses to deliver you. I brought you into this land. He says in there, I delivered you from Balaam who wanted to curse you. I delivered you. You didn't even know that was going on. I delivered the nations into your hands, God said. And God tells them at the end of those 13 verses, he says, I have given you a land. So he tells them, just like he tells us, you're ready to go in and take possession of this promised land, and it's only because of my grace and mercy. That's what he reminds them of in 13 verses there. And can't we say wherever we're at today, we're saved, we've been delivered, we've been blessed in any way, that it is strictly because of God's grace and mercy, right? And so, after he does all that, He's telling them through that, he says, without me, I'm just letting you all know, you would have perished many times over. He's telling those people that. In idolatry, Abraham would have perished in his idolatry. They would have perished as slaves. They would have perished when they tried to battle these nations. If it wasn't for God's grace and mercy, that's what he's telling them. I did it all for you. But look where you're at today. And he tells us that. Without him I could say for myself, I would have perished in my sins without his grace. Drug me out of my Catholic background and drug use and all that. I wasn't seeking him. As a, as a man preached a sermon, he was the hound of heaven. He was after me. He was after me, the Lord was, the hound of heaven. And you could say the same for you. You would have perished in your demonic bondage. The dangers of this life would kill us all, wouldn't it? Praise God for Psalm 91, and he's looking after us. So can we all say amen to that? God's grace and mercy has been with us. So because of that, because of all that, Joshua says, I'm bringing you all with what I said, how God has been with you. He's done all this for you. I'm bringing you now to a day of decision. So look in verses Joshua 24. Look in verses 14 to 15. He says, Now therefore, and the therefore refers back to all the deliverances God gave them. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, Choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. And Joshua tells them, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so, you know, generally that's the only one you ever hear, isn't it? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But he gave them three options. He gave them three choices. He says, you can serve the gods of Mesopotamia, and he's going clear back to the ones that Abraham served before he ever got pulled out of idolatry in Ur of Chaldees. He said, you can go back and serve those gods. Or you can serve the gods of the Amorites, the ones that are in the lands you're in, the Canaanite gods. He said, or your third option, you can serve the Lord. So how many times have we heard from this pulpit that life is full of choices? And we live by choices. And so Joshua begins it all. He says, listen, you all need to fear the Lord and put away, I like what Matthew Henry calls them. He calls them the dunghill deities because that's all they're worth. He says, fear the Lord and put away your dunghill deities. He's saying, but, well, listen, if it's disagreeable with you all, after what all I've just told you, if, if it's disagreeable with us, an evil thing, we don't like the idea of serving the Lord. He says that you have a choice to make. There's other gods there, but you need to make a choice. So if somehow serving the Lord seems like bondage, holiness, you don't like that message, the message of separation, the message of trusting him as your healer, and he said, go serve the other gods then. Serve the gods of the land here. They'd be glad to have you. But Joshua says, as for me, he says, I don't have any other choice. Because here's why Joshua said, I have seen his wonders. And if you remember back, he, he, he was really tight with Moses. And so he knew there was something there when Moses was experiencing the presence of the Lord. 
And he sees Moses out in that tent and that cloud coming down. And Moses leaves and Joshua was like, I want to see, I want to get in there myself. And he experienced that. And that, not only that, but he'd seen the angel of the Lord face to face, the pre-incarnate Christ, the one that went before them, that gave them all these victories. And so what choice does Joshua says? I don't have a choice. Oh, I do. But how can I turn my back on that God? And if you've experienced the presence of the Lord and you've had his power demonstrated in your life and answers to prayer, how can we turn our back on the Lord? And Joshua said, not only that, it includes my house because I lead my house and I know the people's heart in my house. They will follow the Lord too. And so he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so what are the people's answer? Look in verses 16 to 18. They say this, and the people answered and said, oh, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God, he it is that brought us up and our fathers out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, in which did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way wherein we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites which dwell in the land, and therefore we also will serve the Lord. And they say, for he is our God. Oh, they are gung-ho. They're like, we are right with you, Joshua. They even condensed his 13 verses down even more. But they're like, we agree with you totally. God has been with us. He's helped us. He's delivered us from our enemies. He is our God. We will serve him. And Joshua says, now, wait a minute, fellas and gals. Not so fast, he tells them. He says, you had better count the cost before you jump on this bandwagon because he says... God, the Lord God, is a holy God, and not only that, he is a jealous God. And he says, if you forsake him, he will be on you like a lover that has somebody cheating on him. He will be after you. It won't be good, is what he tells them. Look what he says, that's verses 19 to 20, and Joshua says unto the people, you cannot serve the Lord. For he is a holy God, he is a jealous God, and he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. And if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods, he will turn and do you hurt and consume you after that he has done you good. Now, he's not contradicting himself. He's not three verses or four verses before saying, serve the Lord, and now he's saying you can't serve the Lord, like trying to, but he's telling him you need to think about what you're saying you're willing to do. This God you say you're willing to serve. And that's what Jesus did, didn't he? To the multitudes. If you read Luke 14, he preaches the parable, he preaches to the, the harlots and the publicans, the, the love of God and the parable of the prodigal son. And it attracted them to him. This guy has words of mercy and love for us. And so they're attracted. They're wanting to follow him. And he does what no evangelist would do. It says in Luke 14 that he turns to these great multitudes. And he tells them, you, you want to follow me, but do you understand that I demand absolute loyalty and allegiance? That's New Testament. And we should know this, Luke 14. This is not unfamiliar. He sold, then he told the multitudes this. He said, if any man come to me, you want to follow me and hate not his father, mother, wife, children, brother and sisters. Yes, and his own life also. He says he cannot. That's a word of impossibility. He cannot be my disciples. If we are not willing to hate our own lives to follow the Lord, he says, you are not my disciple. You cannot be one. That's a prerequisite. So he's telling them, he goes on in Luke 14 and says, so you better sit down and count the cost. Are you really willing to do what you say you're willing to do? And at the end of that, he says, because whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot, again, that same word, cannot be my disciple. Those are strong words, but those are words I heard when I first got under this faith teaching, back when I first got saved. And it's never changed. 
Jesus' demands have never changed and they never will change. Total allegiance. I heard this illustration that kind of gets the point across and it's a little humorous. But this hen and this hog are walking down the road together, a hen and a hog, and they see a sign that is the pastor's next sermon. And the title was, What Can We Do to Help the Poor? So the hen and the hog get in a discussion. What can they do to help the poor? And they go back and forth. And they never can come up with something until finally the hen gets this bright idea and cackles. I've got it. We can help the poor by giving them a ham and eggs breakfast. <laughs> oh, no, you don't shout, shout back the hog. For, for you, that only means a contribution. But for me, it means total commitment. And guess what? The hog was right, wasn't he? Ham and eggs breakfast. So as one man said that told that, he says, for us, there is no chicken way out, is there? We have got to be whole hog in with the Lord. Right? And so what does that mean? That means Jesus is the Lord of our body, our soul, and our spirit. Is he not? We are not our own. Don't we know that? We're bought with a price. So that means he only has the right to be our healer. It means that we have to obey his words in the Sermon on the Mount. Doesn't he say in Luke, he says, you call me Lord, you don't do what I say. Is that total allegiance? And it means he's the one that supplies our means. It means that he is our everything. He is our all. And not just in song. We sing that. I like that song. But he really has to be our everything and our all. That's what he wants to be. It means we serve him alone because what else does Jesus say? You cannot serve God and another God, mammon. That was actually the name of a God, the money God, mammon. And that's the way I understand and I always have understood and I can't get anything else out of the Bible. That's the way I have always understood my call as a Christian. I've always understood that that is the faith that he requires from me. I still think that faith is spelled forsaking all I trust him. It's never changed. It really hasn't. Maybe we have. But that message has never changed. And so in making that decision, what is Jesus and Joshua, what are both of them asking by what they're saying? They're saying, you have got to burn bridges. Remember that message, burn your bridges. He said, you put away those idols. That didn't just mean for a while. It means they are gone. The world's system, the world's way. It's behind us. That's the only way it's going to work. That's the only way faith will work. And so look in verses 22 to 24 here in Joshua 24. And Joshua said to the people, After that, he said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen, that you have chosen you, the Lord, to serve him. And they said, Oh, yeah, we are witnesses. We agree. And he says, Now therefore, put away, said he, the strange gods which are among you. Put them away. Burn that bridge. And incline your heart unto the Lord God of Israel. And the people, verse 24, said unto Joshua, We will do it. The Lord our God, we will serve, and his voice will we obey. They had counted the cost, and they made a decision, didn't they? And they said, The Lord we will serve, and the Lord his voice will obey. And I'm going to tell you what, Israel as a whole didn't, but these people right here, they did. They did just what they said by the grace of God. They did serve him. They did put away the gods. They did obey. Look down in verse 31. Look what it says. And Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that overlived Joshua and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. That generation did serve the Lord those elders, until another generation come up, came up. And that's another message for another day. 
But they kept their vow to serve the Lord. And you know what helped them do that? Look in verses 26 to 27. And Joshua wrote these words, what the people said in the book of the law of the Lord God. And he took a great stone and set it up there under an oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said unto all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness unto us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spake unto us. It shall therefore be a witness unto you, lest you deny the Lord your God. Man, he, I think it's seven times, I believe, in the book of Joshua. He's big on setting up stone monuments as reminders to people. And this is one time he did it. Set up this huge stone by this tree. And he said, this is going to be here. And every you see this, this is a reminder of what God has just told you of all of his faithfulness. And it's going to remind you that on the basis of that, you said, we will serve the Lord and put away all other gods because he's all we need. He's saying that's what that stone will do, a permanent reminder of God's faithfulness and their promise to cling unto him. Because what was this going on here? This whole chapter, 24, is a covenant renewal for the people of Israel. They pledged anew their vow to wholeheartedly serve the Lord. And they kept it. And I believe God is calling all of us to make a renewed pledge to wholeheartedly serve the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. We need all of us to examine our hearts and put away the idols that are drawing us away from Him. So, you know, and maybe you are fully committed tonight. I'm not saying no one in here is. I don't know. But if you're not fully committed, your conscience You can't get away from that. Listen to it. It's God's voice. You're conscious. I don't need to give all these examples of what could be your idols. Your conscience is telling everyone in here what that idol is that's keeping them from the Lord. And it's probably a multitude of things in this crowd, isn't it? And things you would never tell anyone, maybe. And we need to remember that after we've made that commitment to wholly follow the Lord, that we've done it. And I mean, maybe you can put a rock up in your yard. What would be wrong with that, right? Or put a note in your Bible. Or in this day, I guess you could say, send yourself a text message. And keep it on your phone, right? That I have made a wholehearted commitment to serve the Lord this day. This is my reminder. Put a rock in your yard. Wouldn't I got rocks in my yard. Not as reminders, just reminders. <laughs> I didn't get rid of them. Well, let's say, I would say this. Let's make this day our day of decision. As for me, as Joshua said, I will serve the Lord. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because here's the thing. You can't, we can't keep kicking the can down the road to do this, can we? Because eventually it catches up with us, doesn't it? And one day it's too late. Because we may not have tomorrow to make that choice. Honestly, would we? So Brother Hamilton's last message talked about coming to that valley of decision. And some of his last written words, I don't know if these were the last written words, but there were some of them. I got the picture on my iPad, and it says this. He wrote this. We do not know tomorrow. Plan for today. Life is as missed. Here, gone. I mean, I'm, I'm not just saying this. I think about that often, and I go back and look at that on there. I took a picture. I've got it on there, and I go back and look at it because sometimes I get a little mixed up exactly how he said it. I like the way he said it. James, I think it was James 4.14 was the top of that. So let's make today, I would exhort all of us, let's make today the day that we renew our covenant with the Lord, that we are going to follow him fully. Because it's the only day we have to do it right now, isn't it? So Joshua said, if it seems evil unto you to serve the Lord, you don't like the idea of all that, making a commitment to the Lord that way, that absolute of a commitment and burning your bridges, he said, then choose you this day whom you will serve. There's gods, plenty of gods out there that will be glad to have you serve them. But he said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's make that 
what we say here. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, uh, for these last words that you gave Joshua, this admonishment that he gave the children of Israel. And I just thank you, Lord, that there was a group there that was willing to commit themselves to serving you and that actually did it. And that we can know by your grace we can do the same thing, that we can make a commitment to you and by your grace you will enable us to do it, to serve you faithfully to the end. And I just ask that you'll put that on all of our hearts, that you'll impress on all of us that today is the day of salvation. We don't know that we have tomorrow and that we can make that commitment in our hearts to serve you only. And I just thank you that you'll do that for all of us. I just thank you for speaking to all of us here tonight. And I just do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you all stand up. gotten a little warm, but praise the Lord. Let's, let's take the Lord's word seriously, that it's the Lord's word, and we are coming on dark days, and let's take the admonishment. I would, like I said, so I think it's like 254 people have listened to Brother Hamilton's last sermon. It ought to jump up 100 after tonight. I would encourage all of you to go back and re-listen to it. I really would. I really believe it's the word the Lord's given our church. So, Amen. All right, so if that's it, then shake somebody's hand, say you're glad to see them, and you're dismissed.